excited and honored to share with you the wisdom of my good friend Matthew Wright in this eighth episode of Contemplate This, Conversations on Contemplation and Compassion. If there were a who's who of emerging contemplative teachers in the Christian tradition, Matthew Wright would probably be toward the top of the list. I first met Matthew a few years ago when he was giving a retreat at the Episcopal House of Prayer, a retreat center located in the idyllic Northwoods of my alma mater, St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. And we were both present for the new contemplative exchange gathering of younger, youngish leaders of contemplative Christianity at St. Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, Colorado last August. Matthew is an ordained Episcopal priest, and he lives in Woodstock, New York, with his wife, Yannick, right next to the Brothers of the Holy Cross Monastery. He's probably best known as a retreat director, and he emphasizes Christian contemplative prayer as a prayer of the heart, by which he means that prayer is literally something that occurs in the physical space of the heart. And he also picks up a more ancient monastic strain of theology that considers the heart as the seat or the core of the entire person. And that core includes the intellect or reason, the mind, memory, feelings and emotions, and it's the center of our connection both with the divine within, with God, and to the created world around us. That includes other people and the natural world. As always, you can find the show notes and more information about Matthew and the Wisdom School of which he is a part on the podcast website at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash contemplate dash this. Or you can find the show notes simply at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode eight. That's episode and then the number eight, no spaces. I continue to be grateful for those of you listening who are helping with submitting reviews, especially on iTunes promoting the podcast among your friends and family and social media, and uh, offering donations to support the free media, which you can do at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. Thanks again, and with that, let's jump right into my interview with the Reverend Matthew Wright. All right, Matthew, thanks for being here this morning. Always good to see you, whether on Zoom or in person. The same. Yeah. So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about who you are, where you're coming from, and then we'll we'll back it up from there and hear more of your history. Sure. Uh, I'm an Episcopal priest. Uh, I serve a little parish church in Woodstock, New York, and my wife and I, we live alongside the Brothers of Holy Cross Monastery, which is an Episcopal Benedictine monastic community. We've been here uh, getting close to four years now, and uh, and I've also been I guess for almost a decade now, a student of Cynthia Bourgeau, who's a contemporary uh, contemplative, Christian contemplative teacher who I know you've interviewed on here before. Yep. And <clears throat> over the last few years, I've started uh, working with a little nonprofit called Northeast Wisdom um, that Cynthia helped found for building Christian wisdom community, contemplative community in the Northeast. And also doing a bit of teaching for the Contemplative Society, which is um, an organization that's also sort of in her lineage of contemplative work based up in British Columbia. Um, so that's the sort of Christian side of my roadmap. And for about the same amount of time, I've also been connected to the Threshold Society, which is a um, contemporary expression of the Mevlevi order, 
which is the Sufi oh. order that yeah. descends from Jalaluddin Rumi, and that's uh, directed by Kabir and Kabil Helminski. And so those two contemplative streams, uh, sort of Cynthia's and then uh, Kabir and Kamil's have been my primary kind of formative influences. That's interesting. I mean, I've known you for a couple of years. I didn't know that you were more formally involved with the, uh, help me pronounce it right, Mevlevi? Mevlevi, yeah. Mevlevi, yeah. I mean, I know Rumi's work, and I'm sure a lot of listeners do too, but uh, can you say a little bit more um, maybe about both of those lineages uh, that people might may or may not be familiar with? Yeah, sure. Um, the Threshold Society, uh, it's an attempt to sort of uh, present the wisdom of the Sufi path in our contemporary North American context. And when I started uh, late in high school, when I started a sort of contemplative journey that then began unfolding through college and through seminary, uh, I struggled to find teachers in the Christian landscape, uh, contemplative teachers who could sort of uh, take me on the books that I was reading. Mm. And I actually found that it was easier to find mentors in some of the other contemplative traditions that were around. Um, you know, the sort of Thomas Keatings and Cynthia Bourgeois were few and far between. And so I found some, uh, some helpful mentoring in a, a Sufi community um, that was, uh, you know, I saw at the time as a, a supplement to my Christianity. In a way, it's become sort of a parallel track alongside it um, over the years. Yeah, and that's we might circle back around to that because I have similar uh, experiences with the yoga tradition, mm-hmm. and um, at times they feel parallel, and at times they feel like they're the same track coming yeah. out of different geographical and linguistic and historical locations. But um, so that that would be interesting. And then the schools that you mentioned, I mean, I know Cynthia has talked about her wisdom school. Are these kind of branches of that as well? Yeah, so um, Cynthia's sort of created this far-flung wisdom network, wisdom community, and we've created a few different hubs, or I should say hubs have sort of emerged organically where she's planted the seeds of the work, and uh, one of those is the Contemplative Society up um, up in BC, and then the one here closest to home for me is Northeast Wisdom, and they're really regional attempts to help um, support community to disseminate the teaching. Um, we also try to help with the formation of new leaders and teachers uh, and, and encourage local circles to start up in people's own hometowns after they've come to some of the wisdom schools themselves. And, and the schools tend to be um, weekend or five or six day uh, sometimes retreats that are sort of a, an immersion in the contemplative Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you really have to sort of be immersed in a, a rhythm of prayer and teaching and community um, for a while to start getting it in your bones. And so usually we have people come for an intro school and then they, they come back for a few more and then, and then God willing, they take the seeds with them and start sowing them in their own, you know, their own home turf. Yeah. It reminds me of one of the conversations that was sort of recurring at snow mass last year was, Immersion and infusion. Mm-hmm. Um, the immersion kind of comes out of monastic traditions uh, often because they have the community and the rhythm. And you kind of need that to get started, to like throw yourself into it. But then the infusion is kind of dripping it into daily life. 
Right, right. You know, Cynthia. If you're not living in a monastery, you need maybe a little bit of both to to have it stick. Right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Cynthia's got a great saying that um, when you begin a contemplative practice, it starts as as a place you go to within yourself, but more and more it becomes the place you come from. Yeah. And so hopefully after those initial immersions, more and more you're coming from that, and then it becomes, like you said, an infusion into all of daily life in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's really the model we've been working with, to see contemplation, to actually try to move away from strictly monastic models so yeah. that that it really is about how we infuse this into daily life, so that contemplation is never just sort of, uh, you know, individual navel gazing, but that it's actually, it's not escape from the world. It's preparation for deeper and fuller engagement with all of life. Yeah. As an oblate of St. Benedict up at St. John's myself, I sometimes, well, I pre, I have different ways of thinking about it, I guess, but sometimes thinking about it as like the cultivating a little monastery in the heart that yeah. to carry with, um, because I'm, I obviously wasn't called to stay and be part of that monastic community, but I still love that that draw of it. Mm-hmm. The, the heart image is an important one for me. That's um, yeah. in a in a really sort of literal way. What what's been I think a bridge for me between the Sufi and the Christian contemplative streams is a heart centeredness. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the prayer of the heart stream within Christianity has been really central for me. And then the Sufi tradition is also very much centered around both of these around putting the mind in the heart and developing the heart as a seat and center of awareness and selfhood. Uh, this yeah. other faculty of knowing that isn't just the rational sort of uh, intellectual faculty that we tend to stake our selfhood in, that we can actually uh, anchor selfhood somewhere else. And our culture doesn't tend to tell us that. No. It pushes us away from it, right? whether consciously or not. Can you say a little bit about the prayer of the heart? Because um, some people might not be familiar with that particular tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, in Jesus' own life, we see him uh, living a contemplative rhythm. Um, in Mark's gospel, we're told what his practice was like. Mark says that early in the morning while it was still dark, he got up and went to a quiet place and there he prayed. So we see that as a continual practice that he's going away and, um, and sort of centering. And, but we don't of course know what his technique was, you know, how was he practicing in the silence? But what we do know is what early Christians pretty quickly were doing and writing about. And so in the desert tradition of the desert mothers and fathers, uh, they start talking about this work of drawing the mind, uh, drawing awareness into the heart center. And uh, they connected it to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, mm-hmm. for they shall see God. And we tend to hear that as, uh, blessed are the pure in heart now, for they shall see God later when they die. <laughs> we think of this purity as a sort of moralistic purity. Um, but the contemplative tradition says, no, the heart is actually an organ of spiritual perception. It's a, it's a way of knowing, the way of perceiving um, life reality and that when we polish the mirror of the heart when we open the eye of the heart we see god right now you know we see the one in whom we live and move and have our being we see god in every uh, rock and tree and creature and so their contemplative practice was all about um, purifying the heart and opening the eye of the heart so that we could start seeing uh, from oneness uh, the way jesus saw so then I know the, the prayer of the heart 
um, or the Jesus prayer, perhaps, um, takes on a particular sort of Eastern flavor. Can you trace that lineage? Give us an elevator speech. I, I thought, yeah, sure. I, mean, I, I agree with everything you just said, but um, I was thinking of that particular piece of it as well. Like, yeah, so there, there are two. Fathers talking about repetition, like for John Cashin, it's, oh God, come to my assistance, uh, right. right, from the Psalms. But there are different traditions of kind of repeating a, uh, a, a scripture verse or a phrase to keep the mind in the heart and centered in the present moment and on the divine presence. So can you follow that a little bit out? Because I think that's an interesting lineage that even a lot of Christians probably don't know about. Sure, yeah. And, and uh, I think it's helpful to actually distinguish between the prayer of the heart and the Jesus prayer, which you mentioned, which sometimes um, become almost synonymous. But I like to think of the prayer of the heart as uh, actually putting awareness in that energetic bandwidth of our being that is in, in our heart space, um, that physically anchored in. Uh, the, the general area of our heart, our lungs, our breath, that there's a sort of bandwidth of our being that we can anchor awareness in. And that when awareness is placed in the heart in that way, that that's the prayer of the heart. And then the tradition adds um, scriptural phrases or, or something like the Jesus prayer as an anchor to help hold awareness there. Mm-hmm. So the Jesus prayer in the Eastern Church, which really – ran with the prayer of the heart and developed it most fully, the Jesus prayer becomes the most popular form of sort of word prayer to anchor that, that prayer, which in its probably most common form is Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And that can be coupled with the breath. And then there's the longer form, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, but it seems like the earliest, shortest forms were perhaps just the name of Jesus itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I learned the prayer, I learned it from uh, an Anglican nun who taught it to me as simply Jesus on the in-breath and mercy on the out-breath. Uh, so breathing in the love held in the name of Jesus, breathing out the mercy and compassion of Christ for all creation. Um, and really significantly, the lineage teaches, and then it also sort of flowers and flourishes in the Russian Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. Um, St. Theophan, the recluse, is one of the most beautiful writers on the prayer. Uh, and he says that it's crucial that as you're saying the word, he says it's great if it's in your mouth, uh, but make sure that your awareness is in your heart and not your head. And so the, the practice is actually to take that sacred word and say the word, so to speak, in the cave of your heart. And we're, we're often used to saying words in our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is one of the, the places of sort of divergence with centering prayer, although they don't actually have to diverge here. But often when someone learns a technique like centering prayer where you work with a sacred word, our awareness is in our head, and we're saying our sacred word in our head, trying to get rid of thoughts in our head or release right. thoughts. Um, and we're not taught that we can actually just drop awareness out of our head down into our heart, down into our body, and actually say the word in the cave of the heart, um, which is really a very different uh, different way of staking awareness in our being. Yeah. All right, so we've, we dove in, which is Yeah, awesome. we dove right in. <laughs> I'm not surprised because I've known <laughs> you for a while. Um, but let's back up and okay. um, go kind of autobiographical for a second and can you tell us a little bit, you mentioned kind of introduction in high school and that path. So how did you get drawn into or enter the stream, as a Buddhist would say, 
yeah. into the contemplative world. I actually had a high school teacher, um, strangely enough, who in the mountains of Western North Carolina was a Christian devotee of Paramahamsa Yogananda. Wow. You know, he was one of the, the teachers who brought Vedanta to the West in the early 1900s. And, um, and uh, she no, was, was this a, was it a public high school or it was a public right. high school. And wow. um, she would sometimes sort of uh, incorporate, kind of mindfulness, general kind of contemplative, you know, mindfulness practices into the classroom in a secular, non-religious way. But then outside of class, we would have conversations sometimes about spiritual life. And she was the first person who ever asked me the question, uh, do you think God is within you? Mm. And I'd grown up in a, um, a Pentecostal, uh, fundamentalist kind of Christianity where God was really sort of up there, out there in another dimension. and the question uh, is God within you was really kind of revolutionary for me at the time. And, um, and as I sat with that, it kind of inverted my, my theological worldview. And uh, I remember having some really powerful sort of nature mysticism experiences sitting on my front porch and encountering God in the apple tree in my front yard. Um, Makes me think of Howard. Have you read about Howard Thurman's experiences with trees as a young kid in Florida? Oh, no, no. What yeah. was his experience? Well, he, he writes about it a little bit in his autobiography, but just having this um, almost sort of unexplainable, like you said, a nature mysticism that, of course, at that time you wouldn't have called it that, but just this unexplainable right. connection to the trees and to just sitting in the forest mm -hmm. kid, and then later kind of seeing that as a, like a little sign of being called to contemplation. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So it was something very much like that. It was this sort of experience of really an awakening to divine eminence, to God in the world um, mm -hmm. and um, to the, the uh, inwardness of things that everything has an inside and uh, an awakening to, to God within myself. And so that started leading increasingly to uh, contemplative practice and uh, sort of at the time an eastward turn, because that's where there seemed to be outlets for that. And late in high school, my parents stopped attending the Pentecostal church I'd grown up in. And I was really happy to be out of church for a while, but pretty quickly realized I missed spiritual community. And so started wandering into churches on my own. And I wandered into a little Episcopal church for Thursday evening prayer and um, had no familiarity with liturgy, etc. But the community was so warm, it sort of took and I kept coming back. And it was through um, the Episcopal Church and the Anglican tradition that I was really open to the whole Catholic side of Christianity, where our saints and our mystics and our uh, contemplative traditions were hanging out. And as a Protestant, I didn't really have access to that. You know, you sort of jump from Jesus and the disciples to Martin Luther. <laughs> you bypass that whole first thousand years where, or 1,500 years, uh, when these traditions developed uh, and thrived. So. Um, really discovering that Catholic side of Christianity was a whole new world for me. And it allowed me to not have to turn so far eastward, you know, that, Oh, yeah. we have, we've got these goods right here at home. Yeah. So what, at that point, what did, what did practice look like for you? Like, what were you, did this high school teacher have a particular kind of method or suggestions? Um, you know, it was very kind of generalized and I think it was, uh, 
that was my senior year. And the next year I made my way to the University of North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill. And I think that's when I was first introduced to centering prayer mm. and, um, and also to Zen Buddhist meditation. There was a, a uh, Soto Zen center there that I would go to. And so I was introduced to sort of um, centering prayer and Zazen meditation techniques. And I worked with both of those for a long while. And I think I had a lot of trouble actually moving the prayer out of my head. Like we were yeah. just talking about the prayer of the heart. Yeah. Uh, it was still really me up in my head. And those sort of seated meditation practices, um, I found that for me it often felt like contemplation was a sort of neck up affair. Mm -hmm. you know. And it was when I actually encountered the Sufi tradition I, I went to a Sufi gathering in a, a home that was a, a community connected to a Turkish lineage, not the Mevlevi one that I've been connected to since. And uh, contemplative practice for them involved movement. You know, they were moving in a circle. They were chanting the names of God. And I remember at one point they were chanting, Illallah, Illallah, only God, only God. And I remember looking around the face and uh, around the circle and seeing only God in all these faces. Um, and that was a, a, the shift for me where contemplation actually moved down into the heart, into warmth, into embodiment, um, which was a, a major transition, I think. Um, yeah. And Sufi tradition really helped me get that contemplation wasn't just the image of the seated Buddha, you know, mm -hmm. that, it was, that, that it was movement, that it was dance, that it was fire, that it was life. Hmm. And when was that, that you were introduced to that Sufi tradition? That was, that was actually... I think my first year after undergrad. Um, so okay. during undergrad, actually, was really influenced by Father B. Griffiths, mm -hmm. who was a Roman Catholic priest, you know, who had spent the last half of his life in India, where he said he went to discover the other half of his soul. Mm -hmm. And um, and he was a major integrating force for me, sort of bridging Hindu and Christian contemplative lineages. Um, so that, that ultimately sent me abroad for a semester to India and then again before seminary back to spend some time at Beads Ashram uh, down in southern oh, India. I didn't know that you had spent some time there. So what was that experience like? Uh, you know, it was really, it was really powerful and formative. Um, Bead had become such a personal saint for me. And um, really these language we're using more commonly today, uh, a teacher of non-dual Christianity, you know, who is really explicitly teaching a sort of non-dual or unitive vision um, within the Christian tradition. And, um, yeah, I found that it was a place, Brother John Martin is sort of Bede's successor there. So he was the teacher at the ashram at the time, still is now. Mm. Um, but he was just teaching so beautifully and so explicitly um, this non-dual unitive contemplative vision within a Christian framework. So that was really uh, kind of uh, healing and affirming, you know, to hear it spoken so explicitly. It's, yeah, I'm just noticing or it's interesting to note that your personal path, I think, mirrors what a lot of people today are experiencing, though perhaps without finding something more integrative and healing on the other end of it. But that experience of kind of, Pentecostal, and, and it doesn't have to be Pentecostal, but some kind of experience of Christianity or religious tradition that um, at some point kind of falls apart in a kind of dark night of the soul sense. 
with your family leaving, but then left with this longing. Um, and I think a lot of people maybe are still there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, but you were fortunate to find your way into these different paths that were more integrative and um, that that's been within the Christian tradition and informed by other encounters with other traditions as well. And the, I know the term, yeah. I think it was Wayne Teasdale who first used a uh, student of Bede Griffiths, right? Who first mm -hmm. or used that term interspiritual. Um, is that, is that your understanding of kind of the history of that term as well? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, um, Brother Wayne was a Roman Catholic lay monk and he coined the term interspirituality to point to a different kind of uh, dialogue between our religious traditions uh, than what we were most common, commonly seeing. And he said interfaith dialogue had been the sort of dialogue between people of goodwill that had, that's been happening for the last 5,100 years and happening primarily at the social level. Um, let's share a meal, have an interfaith dinner, um, you know, do an interfaith service project, build a habitat house with the local synagogue or something. Um, and at the intellectual level, you know, yeah. let's talk about what you believe, what I believe. And he said interspirituality pointed to a really vulnerable kind of dialogue at the contemplative level where we're sharing the interior spiritual resources of our traditions across the old lines. And so the question shifts from uh, what do you believe to how do you pray? How do you experience God? And so we start meeting across traditions at the experiential level and, uh, and we share the experiences. You know, I say, come experience my practice of prayer and taste the holy as I taste it, and then I vulnerably taste the holy in your tradition. Um, so it's so a very vulnerable and much more transformative than the kind of dialogue that ha happens just up in our heads. Yeah. <laughs> Something that stuck with me from my interview with Philena Hewitts was that she noted that some of the people most interested in coming to their silent contemplative prayer gatherings in Omaha at the Gravity Center were Muslim women. Um, wow. Yeah, they were enjoying and drawn to sitting in silence with, you know, people of uh, that. That to me is kind of an interspiritual example. That can be. I mean, there's a lot of them out there, but yeah, but that we we can all meet in silence. We all share the language of silence across every tradition. And um, as as Thomas Keating likes to say, silence is God's first language, and you know everything else is is poor translation. Mm -hmm. um, so to me there, and it certainly feels like um, I, I've gained a new appreciation of that image of Pentecost from the Acts of the Apostles. Um, that's different from what I grew up with in the Pentecostal church. Um, that moment where the disciples look and they see the tongues of fire resting on each other's heads. And then they go out and they begin sharing this good news and everyone hears it in their own language mm -hmm. in the story. It says, you know, basically the whole known world is gathered and, um, Significantly, it doesn't say they all started speaking the same language. It says they all understood in their own language. So none of the diversity gets erased, um, but a unity arises in the midst of it. And I think in a way we're in this sort of interspiritual, interreligious Pentecost right now. Mm. Where, you know, a Christian looks and sees the tongue of fire on a Muslim's head, who looks and sees the tongue of fire on a Buddhist's head. And, um, and we suddenly understand each other, you know, in what was previously unknown tongues. But there's this new understanding arising. It's kind of uh, like that moment of Pentecost. Now, that's a really cool way of thinking about that classic story. Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to have yeah. to chew on. I'm going to contemplate that one for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you also use the the language a couple times of non-dual and then non-dual experiences in the Christian tradition. So can can you explain what you mean by that or how you experience that? Sure. Um, non-duality is really a you know a borrowed term from Eastern traditions. The Sanskrit words advaita, which just means not to. And so non-duality means that ultimately God and the soul, you and me, God and creation are, are not two. Um, but the more subtle teachers say not one, not two, both one and two. Um, and so there's a sort of a, a unity and a dynamism in the midst of it. It's a unity that doesn't erase diversity or difference, but that expresses itself through it. Um, so, yeah, that teaching that ultimately uh, there's no separation within the field of existence that, you know, everything's interwoven, um, that we're interwoven into God. Um, and within the Christian kind of heart prayer teaching, the teaching is that, is that the heart is the organ that can see that unity, that the mind, it tends to see, um, by subject-object division. You know, the mind, it's a great gift for us is that it calculates, quantifies, and cuts things up into parts and pieces. And that's not bad in the least. We need a, a, a faculty that can do that in order to function in the world. Um, and, but we've developed that faculty so far in the Western world that we've lost or atrophied this other organ of perception that sees from unity or wholeness. And so the idea with prayer of the heart is that we're getting our hearts back online, that our hearts are able to perceive the universe qualitatively rather than quantitatively. The heart is able to perceive beauty and truth and that the heart is also able to see from wholeness and unity that the heart, when it's online, it reads the wider pattern in which everything is held. Uh, and it, it finds its proper place within that wholeness of things. Whereas our egoic mind, it, it cares most about the part. What's good for the part? And we see that in our, um, in our political landscape and everywhere in the world today. What's good for my religious group or my national identity or my family or, you know, my kind? And it's all about looking for what's best for a part of the whole. And the heart says, no, what's best for the part within the whole? How does each part find its balance within the wholeness? Um, and so getting the heart back online through contemplative practice is really getting the eye back online that can, can see that way and interact that way. I like that language of getting it online. Uh, yeah. It sort of resonates with our contemporary, uh, you know, Internet-connected world that we've used our Western critical intellect well to develop. Um, or as Cynthia puts it, uh, it's, it's upgrading the operating system of our mm -hmm. being so that we can perceive in a different way. I think sometimes that non-dual or that heart-centered way of being, uh, I, I, it's hard to even find language because I want to say it transcends, but that makes it sound like it's on another level, but it's mm -hmm. actually the same level. <laughs> um, or some people might hear that if you haven't, sort of tasted that or experienced it through a practice or a community or a teacher. I think often people might hear that as sort of, you need to get rid of your intellect. You need to silence your intellect. You need to, you know, the mind is bad. And you didn't use that language at all. 
-hmm. but how would you approach that, you know, to explain that it's a way of, of integrating that into a larger whole rather than like, this is bad, you know? Mm -hmm. well, well, just exactly what you said that, yeah. you know, that it is about integrating it into a larger whole, that the mind is a great faculty and it's given us advances in technology and medicine, etc. Um, and that those are all great gifts. And um, the mind, the, that sort of rational faculty is, is a tool and a servant of the whole person, but we've mistaken it for the whole person, you know, that it's who we are. And <clears throat> for example, the mind has created these amazing tools like the internet. The internet is this amazing interconnecting technology that is interlinking the world at a conscious level in a way we've never seen before. And um, from one perspective, you know, we could say it's our salvation, you know, that it's all these dark places and things that have been hidden can't stay hidden anymore. They're raised up into conscious awareness, shared through social media, you know, and that can lead to transformation. At the same time, the same tool can be used, um, you know, for our damnation. It can be used... Um, to further divide us, uh, to manipulate us with, you know, quote unquote, fake news and um, et cetera. And so the mind can create these technologies, um, but we need to use them uh, from the place of heart. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we use the Internet uh, from the place of the heart that sees from wholeness and sees how this can be a tool for healing and interconnection rather than from the mind, the egoic mind that says, how can I use this tool to manipulate the world to, for my own ends and for my own good rather than for what's good and best for the whole. Um, so again, the mind gives us these great advances and then the heart uses them in the most healthy um, way. And uh, so, so in the Christian tradition, we never say, you know, sometimes in the Sufi tradition, they do say uh, these sort of extreme things like to, to walk on this path, you must be willing to cut off your head and sit on it. <laughs> um, well, know, they the, really one up Jesus on that one with plucking out your eye and right, right. Your hand. Um, but, but the Christian language is more often and the Sufi language. It's not so much get rid of your head. It's how do we draw the mind into the heart? How do we draw our, our, our mental center down into the, the unitive vibration of the heart so that the mind is a servant of the heart and of the whole. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what it's ultimately about. It's about integration, you know, becoming whole persons rather than, you know, these isolated parts. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to decide. There's so many different parts that I could follow up on here. I'm trying to decide where to go next, but you, well, you let, let me throw. Yeah, go ahead. You go, go ahead. I was going to say, let me throw out a heart thing while you're pondering. Another thing with the heart um, is the way contemporary scientific research, is, what, what it's showing us about the heart as an organ of perception. Uh, there's this uh, funky little research institute out in California called uh, the Institute for Heart Math, mm -hmm. as in mathematics. Uh, and they've been hooking people up to EKGs uh, for the last several years. And what they found is that electrocardiograms. What they found is that the heart actually generates a, a measurable electromagnetic field. Mm -hmm. um, and they've, they've shown that if you're in an emotionally fragmented, sort of incoherent, jumbled state, that's measurable in that energetic field that your heart puts out. And the heart field is actually several times, um, like 60 times greater in amplitude than the field of our brain waves. It's measurable several feet outside of our body. And they would give people contemplative heart-centered breathing exercises. 
and they could measure the way that heart field became more coherent and radiant when someone was centered in that way, and the way the heart field actually came into entrainment with the brain field or our brain waves. They moved into alignment and entrainment so that the person was moving as an integrity rather than as this sort of um, fragmented being. Yeah. Most of the time we're moving in the world in this deeply fragmented way. Our head's running over this way and our heart's running over that way. And contemplative practice actually brings our whole being into alignment. Um, and and that, those heart fields were impacting each other. You know, if you've ever walked into a room and felt the energy that there was anger or depression or joy, it's probably not your imagination. It's probably actually picking up the energetic signature in the room you know, that's being generated by the hearts that are around you. Yeah. And I, I think we can learn to attune to that. And, and the more we dwell in that space, be even more attentive to that and pick up mm -hmm. on those cues and respond then accordingly. It's interesting. No people won't be able to see you when we put this out as a podcast, <laughs> but uh, you were, you know, kind of your alignment was all, when you when talked about alignment, it was all along the spine and the neck uh, mm -hmm. and what we might think of as the, the energy channels of the chakras in, mm -hmm. in yoga practice. Um, and so there's something there about even, I think, the even maybe in a, a totally secular draw to that embodied practice that we're sort of intuitively looking as a culture to realign, to bring the heart back online the way you put right. it earlier. And we're finding this in all these different ways. And now we're trying to figure out how to integrate that and live out of that space. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the Christian tradition, um, speaking about that alignment, it sometimes uses the symbol of the cross, of course, mm -hmm. um, which has the, the horizontal beam of the cross and the, the vertical. And, uh, you know, it's said sometimes that human beings that were, were meant to be amphibious beings, that were designed to live in two dimensions of reality, but we've, we've forgotten about one of them. Mm -hmm. And the, the horizontal beam of the cross, that horizontal axis is our life and time, uh, our personal story, our ego drama, all that unfolding along that horizontal axis. Um, but always intersecting with our life in the horizontal dimension is the vertical, which is the eternal, which is spirit, which is, you know, divine reality is always intersecting with and then breaking into our life and time, but we're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so contemplative practice is about, uh, you know, awakening to that vertical dimension and then integrating it into our life along the horizontal line so that we're living consciously in both worlds. Um, T.S. Eliot has this great line where he says, the occupation, how does he say it? He says, to live at the intersection of time and timelessness is the occupation of the saint, mm. uh, which I love. And if you, if you map that, uh, that cross over the human body, where's the point of intersection? You know, the heart center. Uh, the heart. And so the Christian tradition sees the heart as the integrating center, or in Eastern terms, the integrating chakra. You know, you've got those yeah. lower chakras connecting you to physical density in the world, the higher ones connecting you to the subtle realms. And the goal isn't to move up, 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 and out through the highest chakra. It's actually to integrate everything in the heart chakra. You know, that's the sort of bridge between worlds. Mm. So what does your practice look like now? If somebody were to kind of on a daily level, what's your, 
how are you integrating that into daily life? Sure. Um, like I, I'm, and I'm talking like really detailed level. Do you have like a cushion in a corner of your room, <laughs> like practical? And then you could talk about method or, or you know, how you approach it. Yeah. Um, embodied or, or however that looks for you. So the great thing about, and I'll get back to formal practice. I do have formal daily practices. Um, but the great thing about something like that heart-centered awareness, yes, you can sit in a chair on a cushion and learn to put the mind in the heart um, and learn to center yourself there more. But the great thing about a practice like this is that you can do it anywhere and everywhere. Walking down the street, how do things shift when you walk down the street with awareness out of your thinking mind anchored in your heart? Um, washing the dishes, how does awareness shift when you just drop down with a sacred word and, or with the breath into the cave of the heart? Um, so, so more and more I try to, you know, pull it into any situation. And on the most practical level, it totally reorients the playing field if you're in a moment of um, conflict or tension, you know, with another human being. Let's say things are starting to get heated or tense um, with a family member on the phone or, you know, the, the, the person in the office talking to you. If you keep awareness in your head, it's really easy to go on the defensive. I'm going to go on the defensive. I'm going to figure out my argument rather than listen to you, and then I'm going to attack. If you just take half a second to shift awareness down into your heart, you literally physically can't speak from a defensive place anymore. Um, the heart is this totally open, vulnerable space. Um, I like to call it sometimes a vulnerable invulnerability. It's totally vulnerable because it's totally open, but it's also invulnerable because if you punch into open space, you don't hit anything. Um, <laughs> and if you can just shift for a moment down in the heart, um, you stop pouring fuel onto the fire, ego fuel on the fire, and it changes things. And so this is where for me, Practice becomes practical. You know, it's not just the cushion. It's in life, in the world, and in relationships. Um, so that, I, I try just to do that shifting, you know, throughout the day. You know, when I remember, when I realize I'm not in presence and I'm not in my heart, just drop back in while I'm, you know, out for a walk or wherever it is. Um, for the formal practice, uh, I do, in the morning, uh, tend to have uh, a Sufi zikr practice. So this comes from my Mevlevi side of things, where you're given um, names of God to chant with prayer beads. Mm. And, um, you know, it can just be Allah, which, of course, is a, uh, the name for God in Arabic, which is the name a Palestinian Christian uses. It's the name an Arabic-speaking Jew uses. You know, it's not a Muslim name. Um, and Allah is, is also very close to the Aramaic Jesus would have used, uh, Allah. Mm -hmm. um, and so... It's just better for chanting than God. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to go, God, God, God. But, it's got that guttural in there. Right. And the when, breath, Allah. And it's Allah. that story that Richard Rohr told on our retreat mm -hmm. about that you can't say Allah without breathing right. the name. Yeah. And that it, it's very... It, it brings it back to that story you told earlier about reframing through just this simple question of where do you find or can you find or, or see, I forget how she phrased it, God within, right? right. In the breath, in the body, in the heart. Huh. 
so that so actually vocally chanting um you know in set counts um so Allah is part of the the Mevlevi practice that gets chanted at least 300 times and there are other names that you know have set counts and so when you're actually chanting Allah 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 you feel the vibration actually in your heart that's physically mm -hmm. where you feel that that vibration and it is almost like this energetic um cleansing of your heart you know yeah. you get all all these accumulated um you know emotional gunk gets built up around our heart and just to drop in and sort of charge the heart with that chant it sort of is a purification of the heart and it really helps awareness anchor there because you've got the sound and the vibration in your body um, to kind of hold it there uh, so i've got that practice um, with the sort of vocal chanting um, and and then just once the heart sort of activated just actually sitting in the silence um, sort of wordlessly in that space um, so that's really the Sufi practice is probably my primary contemplative practice these days. Mm -hmm. um, and it was helpful to learn like that contemplative practice can include your voice. Yeah. Contemplative practice can include prayer beads in your hands. You can have these embodied anchors. It doesn't just have to be sitting absolutely still, you know? Um, yeah. No, I think that's important so that we don't get so stuck in the head, which right. of course is a particular challenge in a Western context we're so our whole cultural idiom kind of points in that direction right right so the way I here's how I kind of think about formal practice in relationship to the the kind of daily dropping into the heart throughout maybe stressful or mundane situations and I'll just throw this off for you and have you react if you agree or disagree or refine but I think about the formal practice as kind of like the time of going to the gym, right? Of like mm -hmm. um, exercising and strengthening that capacity to allow my awareness to drop into the heart center, to cultivate interior silence, to mm -hmm. allow the, the, the dirt to settle out of the water a little bit. Um, and, and then for me, if I'm doing that regularly, it's much easier for me to catch myself throughout my day when I am getting kind of frazzled by something um, to then drop in and kind of change my experience or have a, a different kind of perceptual approach to a problem um, that I might be working on at work or a relationship that is difficult or something like that. Um, so do you, what is your thought on kind of, because obviously if I think ultimately from the contemplative viewpoint, it, it, it's all, it's all integrated, right? Mm -hmm. The formal, the formal practice is not simply done for the sake of formal practice, right? But rather to upgrade our operating system or to create a new way of mm -hmm. engaging in the world. So, uh, how would you? How do you think about that? Does that resonate with your own approach? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. That I think formal periods of practice uh, in a disciplined way, you know, ideally daily. Um, that it's absolutely essential because you are building a sort of reserve, a reservoir, you know, within yourself. And uh, then you have that to draw on from the day. That's why I think Jesus, again, Mark says, he got up, you know, while it was still dark, uh, found a quiet place uh, to pray that he's before he engages the world. He takes time to intentionally find that center so that he can engage the world out of that center. 
you can't expect just to, you know, be living life and in the, the midst of all the chaos and craziness of a day just to find it. You know, you need to have actually identified that place in yourself, familiarized yourself with it so you know how to get back there. You know, mm-hmm. you know where it is. And, um, and I, I think we also, in practice, we're cultivating enough spaciousness within ourselves so that we're not fused to our, our constricted ego identity. Most of the time, we're absolutely fused to our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. We don't have thoughts. We don't have, you know, feelings. We are them. I am this anger. I am this moment of depression or joy. Um, and in practice, we're creating enough space so that we are the context of our awareness rather than the contents of our awareness. And when you can create that spaciousness, uh, and neuroscience is showing us this too. You know, when a stimulus comes into your field of experience, if you have no contemplative spaciousness within your being, uh, that stimulus gets routed right to the least evolved center of your brain, um, <laughs> your, you know, what we sometimes call our, our reptilian brain, our lizard brain that governs our, it's our hind brain that governs our primitive fight or flight responses. And so most of the time in the world, no contemplative spaciousness inside of us, something happens, goes right into that lizard brain and you either, you know, fight it or you run away from it. Mm -hmm. But when we sit daily in practice, there's enough spaciousness that when that stimulus comes in, it actually gets routed up into your prefrontal lobes and uh, there's room for compassionate and creative thinking to come into the situation that isn't there when we're so tightly constricted. Um, and identified with our thoughts and feelings. Um, so I think, yeah, we build up a reserve of spaciousness and formal practice so that we actually can engage life differently uh, as we move through the world. And so again, practice is for the sake of life in the world, not, you know, an escape from life in the world. Yeah. Something I was, that was, that was good stuff. <laughs> it was something I was thinking about as you were talking this phenomenon that's happening in our culture with kind of a fascination around mindfulness and meditation and there, you know, all kinds of apps. And I even have some of my teachings on insight timer. Um, And I think what can happen is sometimes people are really curious about it. um, But you were talking before about that daily discipline Mm -hmm. or about really embracing um, what we would call asceticism or discipline. Um, so what would you say to somebody who, you know, maybe doesn't feel deeply grounded in a particular tradition or have a teacher that they know or a community that they feel drawn to, but who is really like deeply in touch, has started to get in touch with that yearning mm-hmm. right? to live in the heart center to uh, we're so many of us, I think, are fed up with so much of the anger and the rhetoric and the divisiveness that we're seeing in the world and we're craving this different way. But what would you say to people who maybe don't know where to go with that? Like, how do you, um, obviously they can come to the, to your retreats, but, (laughs) um, I don't know. What would you say to somebody who might be in that kind of position? Yeah. Well, trust the yearning and follow the yearning, you know, first of all, that, that, that yearning is in us like a, a homing beacon, you know, that underneath, all of the divisiveness, all of the cruelty of the world, you know, all of all of our dualistic thinking, there is this homing beacon deep within us that 
that that knows. Now it's it's as I said, the heart. It's really the heart's knowing that is atrophied and covered over. But if you pay attention, it's sending out those signals. And if you trust them and follow them, um, you know, you're on the path already and it will unfold. Um, I don't think there's a sort of one size fits all answer, you know, oh, go to this teacher, go to this street, do this practice. Um, But if you trust the yearning, you'll be led to the places and the people and the practices that work for you. Um, hmm. So, so yeah, yeah, there's, you know, there's a beautiful story again, back in the Sufi tradition about this dervish. You might've heard me tell this before, Tom, about a dervish who's a spiritual seeker, a student on the path who, uh, night and day, he would sit under a tree calling out to God, Allah, Allah, just yearning and longing for God. And, um, one day the cynic passes by and says, oh, you foolish dervish, you know, you sit here nine day wasting your life, you know, longing for God, yearning for God. Has God ever once responded to your cries? And this sends the dervish into despair because he realizes, no, God's never once responded to my cries, my longing. Uh, so this deep pit of despair uh, until God sends a messenger, a divine messenger who says, Oh, beloved servant, your Lord would have you know that that your cries, your longing is his response, is her response, uh, that our longing isn't a sign of our separation from God, that our longing is actually the divine longing within us, that God is longing to unfold through us in the world, uh, that that is God's very longing in our being. Uh, it's not the sign that we're we're on the wrong path or we're disconnected. And if we just follow that, um, the path unfolds in front of us. Um, so I would say, you know, find practices, find resources, explore. And when something resonates, when something connects, work with it, you know, follow it. And uh, there is a learning curve with any practice. And there are those sort of dry spells. Um, and so I do think mentoring is important. Um, it's hard to go it alone. You know, there can be a period of going it alone. And then maybe way down the path, maybe there's another period when it's so anchored, you can go it alone again. But I think at some point, it is really crucial to find mentors, community, and practice. And, um, you know, the great thing about the time we live in is that the traditions are opening themselves in, in new ways. You know, people... Um, so many teachers and traditions are offering these resources and treasures um, without sort of forcing the old identity boundaries on people, you know? Okay, you want to practice sinning prayer? Come and try it. And you don't have to slap the Christian label on yourself in order to try the practice, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And and I think that's a reorientation happening within the traditions right now that we're seeing – they're not really about identity labels. That um, Jesus didn't come to slap the identity label Christian on as many people as he could. He came to awaken hearts. You know, he came to transform the world and to awaken hearts. And um, his wisdom is, is human wisdom. You know, it's for all of us. This Jesus path, you know, anybody can walk it, whether you slap a label onto yourself or not. So, so find the wisdom, find the communities, find the teachers and, um, and plug in and see where, where the breadcrumbs take you. Mm. As you're talking about that, I, I'm thinking of the, 
quote from Blaise Pascal, the heart has its reasons that the reason cannot understand. Mm. Um, this seems to fit both with the image of heart, but also that idea of uh, following the path or another line that I've heard. And I don't, I don't know if it comes out of the Buddhist tradition or where I heard it first, but that, that idea that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. Um, and then it's almost like by getting in touch with our longing, even if we don't understand it and we can't name it, um, that somehow we get in touch with a kind of resonance or energy that actually draws what we need toward us mm -hmm. or the resources. And that, of course, is Allah's energy working its way. Right. I was going to say toward us, but it's not toward, it's through us. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the other thing I would add is just a word of caution, just to always remember, too, that that teachers are humans mm -hmm. <laughs> and that no teacher is perfect and that sometimes you'll disagree with the teacher um, and that uh, really life is the teacher. Life expressing itself through the teacher-student relationship uh, is the teacher. Life expressing itself through the lover-beloved relationship is the teacher. And um, uh, so just to be careful to uh, not give your inner authority over in such a way that, you know, uh, you actually drown out that homing beacon deep within you. You know, there is that within you which knows. And um, because, you know, we've seen too many guru cults gone, gone wrong, you know, over the last 50 years. And uh, beautiful thing from Zen, Zen Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, he says that the next Buddha will be the Sangha, will be the mm. Buddhist community. And I think similar we could say, you know, the next Christ will be, will be the community, will be the collective, um, that we're sort of moving out of the age of um, heroes and saviors and, you know, realizing that, that it's us, we're it, uh, we're in it together, hand in hand. And uh, I think there's a new dynamic in this teacher-student relationship emerging that, that's a little bit more reciprocal mm. and, and that the learning and the teaching goes both ways, that, yes, the teachers are ahead of us in certain ways on a path, and that we need to submit to their wisdom with humility, but that also there's an intergenerational learning happening as the spiritual landscape sort of shifts, and I think we are finding new models, um, less hierarchical, uh, more intergenerational, and um, it's just a learning curve. It's interesting to put on my theologian hat for a minute, how closely what you're describing there as the, the community tracks with the 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 developments that came out of Vatican II in the Catholic mm -hmm. tradition mm -hmm. of a new, we would call it ecclesiology in technical terms, but an, um, a different way, or I should say it's actually multiple or plural ways of understanding what we mean by the presence of Christ in the church. Um, but that the, the, the predominant model that has sort of em emerged out of that is that it's the gathered community, right? Um, worshiping together in, in union right with that diversity that you talked about before mm -hmm. so i think we're we're struggling our way into that and within the whole we need post holders you know all hierarchy isn't bad right um, there can be unhealthy pathological hierarchy but there can be um our wisdom teachers are our post holders they hold a space for community to consolate and for wisdom to be shared um, but uh, it's not ultimately about them. 
and yeah. hopefully we can get to a place where the post the post is interchangeable you know you know someone sits on the post and holds that space so something can happen but then they can get up and they're not identified with the post and they can let someone else you know hold the post um i think it was eckhart toll uh who talked about uh when he's sitting in front of a community of people, he's got a thousand people in an audience and he's supposed to be doing spiritual teaching. He's got to sit on that stool and hold the teacher post. Um, but if when he gets off the stool and he goes to the grocery store and he's buying his vegetables, if he's still holding the post, then something's wrong. You know, that's become pathological and he's overly identified. And I think there's always a risk for spiritual leaders to become over identified with the post they hold. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Great wisdom. There's a train of thought in here as well that I want to pick up or a line of thought that has to do with kind of the um, – well, at Snowmass, I think we talked about it as like the phenomenology, the, the social expression of this contemplative moment. Um, and I think a lot of – we've talked a lot about practice. We've talked about um, kind of the fracturing in our external community. So – um, I'm even thinking about this in terms of like today is World Refugee Day and um, we have, um, you know, so we're recording this on June 20th and we're in the midst of um, a lot of discussion and frustration about immigration policy and separating children from their families. And I think that's another area where just like the teacher can identify with the post, the contemplative can identify with um, what's the word I'm looking for? Trying to like force our will into the social or the public or the political arena. Mm. But I think the call that is very genuine and authentic is to integrate that kind of witness for justice or for the poor and the vulnerable out of the contemplative experience of solidarity of being in communion. Yeah. Um, so what are your thoughts on how those of us engaged in and committed to this, this moment of, of awakening, however it manifests, to move that into that really contentious realm mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't pour more fuel on the fire, right, but actually opens hearts and, and hopefully manifests in, in kind of real change, some of which might need to be political and legal um, and structural, yeah. but that's a tough, I think that's a really tough, I mean, that, this is what I obsess about <laughs> in mm -hmm. my own teaching and research. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on how we approach that. Well, I think we're absolutely at a moment of integration within the sort of unfolding spiritual landscape and that for a long time we have divided, you know, in, in the Christian world, it's, and uh, in, in the world of religious orders, you know, the contemplative orders and the contemplative life and then the apostolic, you know, orders that are engaged in active ministries in the world. And we've seen them as sort of really two different paths and you have to choose one or other, you know, are you a contemplative or are you engaged in apostolic? And I think uh, the Jesus model is really a model of integration. You know, Jesus, he's contemplative and he's fully engaged in the pain and the needs and the transformation of the world. And he, he goes out, he engages, and then he withdraws with the disciples. And then he goes back and engages. And so we're really, I think, entering the era of the contemplative activist or the sacred activist. And um, 
we need to bring the two together because our activist work without contemplative grounding leads to that angry dualistic burnout. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the horrors and the evil that we see in the world right now, you know, it's so extreme. As you said, you know, children being torn from families at our southern border. Um, we, can, we can fight that from this angry, uh, constricted, ego-identified place, and we're going to just burn out in no time. Uh, if we can infuse that work with contemplative spaciousness and compassion, then the work will be much more effective, and, and the workers will be much less likely uh, to burn out. And, and I also think this is where getting the heart back online is so important, that um, when you look at something just from the perspective of, well, this is the law, this is how it is, uh, and you don't pay attention to the real human pain, um, well, your heart's not fully online. You're not fully human. Uh, when, when the heart is brought online, an awakened and sensitized heart uh, is sensitized to the pain of the whole, to the pain of the world, to all of the imbalances in the system that are causing pain. And again, it looks from the perspective of the whole and says, what pieces need to be arranged to bring healing and balance into the whole? Um, a heart that, and it's easier to keep our heart shut down because then we don't have to feel the pain of the world. It would be so nice to not have to feel, you know, the pain of the other. Um, but Jesus says, well, what you do to the least of these, you do to me, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and, and it's not as much as yourself. It's as your own self. And it's the awakened heart that sees my neighbor is not other than me, that we, we participate in a single self. Um, but again, uh, we've been taught to live behind our, our national boundaries, etc., cetera, um, to keep the heart shut down and to not have to feel that. Um, and I think we're also at a unique time along the sort of evolutionary arc of things in that for the first time in human history, all of us are having to hold all of the pain of the world. Yeah. Thanks to social media and the internet. Um, it used to be you saw the pain in your local town, in your village. Maybe you got news for your state, you know, or maybe for your country. But today we're bombarded on a daily basis with the pain of the entire world. And human hearts haven't evolved to know how to hold this much pain, you know. And it may be true that in one sense there's less, there's less violence from war than ever before in human history, less sexism, less homophobia, less et cetera than ever before. Um, statistically, it does seem that's true. Nevertheless, we're all confronted with more of it than we have ever been confronted with. Uh, And the hope is that that bright light being shined on all this will bring it forward for transformation. But we have to learn to hold all of that. Um, And I think that's where contemplation comes in. You know, creating the space to be able to hold that pain without going numb, without shutting down, or without burning out uh, is really essential. Um, and unless we get contemplation online into our activist circles, uh, we won't be effective in the work that is in front of us. Hmm. That image of spaciousness seems so important. Um, I kind of working through some of the work of John of the Cross, 
who talks about this. Um, he actually doesn't necessarily use the language of heart. He uses more of the classic kind of scholastic categories. But mm -hmm. regardless, he's talking about these interior faculties and says that we, we have an infinite capacity to receive God into those, into those spaces and that in our practice we touch those spaces. And then while we do that, if we're able to – yeah, because it's so overwhelming to try to open to that, mm -hmm. to be vulnerable – to that pain that mm -hmm. we want to shut down. And so we need a way to have that spaciousness. Yeah. I once heard a, um, I can't remember her name now, but it was a yoga teacher on a podcast talking about, so you talked before about if somebody punches into empty space. It doesn't hit anything. Right. You use the language of um, being like a, a tree uh, with a strong wind blowing through it. But if, if the tree is planted in its own, integrity and alignment um, and flexible that the wind blows through mm -hmm. uh, but then the tree just remains right uh, similar ways of thinking about that that there's a real energy involved in the way we act and live in the world yeah so it's a bringing that into the, the activist and the, the bearing witness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know in the in the Sufi tradition the, the heart it's understood that there are many layers of to the heart, mm -hmm. you know, and that um, classically it's talked about. There's uh, the Arabic word sadr, which is the the breast, actually the chest, and then it moves inward to the heart proper, and then the inner heart, and then the eye of the heart, and that outer chest area, sadr, is it's sometimes called the courtyard of the heart, mm. it's where all of our emotions hang out all of our, um, all of those feelings. And often we think when we talk about the heart, we think the heart is the center of emotions. Um, and this tradition would say, well, actually the heart, the, the emotions can obscure the heart, you know, mm -hmm. because our feelings, we wrap all of these egoic narratives around them. You know, we tightly wind it. Um, and then we run off in our story, but to actually uh, move through those layers. And it's not that, those feelings in the courtyard of the heart are bad. We're all feeling them right now in our political situation. Um, they're trying to tell us things, you know, particularly in spiritual scenes, we often see certain emotions as negative. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're really spiritual, you won't be angry. If you're really spiritual, um, you know, etc. cetera, um, maybe you won't even be sad if you're spiritual. Um, but to see that these emotions our, our energies in our body that are trying to tell us important things. Anger is information. You know, it's trying to tell us about injustice in the world. Uh, or maybe it's trying to tell us that our ego is overinflated. <laughs> Could be a uh, combo of both. Right. Um, but, Speaking from my own experience. <laughs> right. Mine too. Yeah. Uh, but, but to realize if I can let go of the story I've attached to this feeling and sit with it and see what it's genuinely trying to tell me, um, it's telling me information and then I can drop through that layer down into those deeper layers of the heart, you know, that are, that are clouded by that. So it's not that we want to kill our feelings. Uh, we want to let them communicate to us um, without moving into that sort of emotional ego reactivity mm -hmm. that, that often usually happens when we, you know, hook into those feelings. Yeah. And I like, yeah, I like that language. We don't want to kill our feelings. We don't want to kill our thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think of it sometimes in terms of we don't want to 
we don't want to identify with those feelings and thoughts. And unless we've had some space in which to allow them to come and go, to investigate them, to unfold whatever wisdom or information that they might contain, right. um, then it's really hard to not identify with them. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Um, well, I have some kind of closing questions. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything that we haven't talked about that you really wanted to <laughs> touch upon? Mm. Or Oh, let's see. Well, maybe just a quick word on just following that thread of Jesus as a non-dual teacher. Mm. That Just to say that it seems so explicit when I read the Gospels, when I step back from my sort of, you know, filters and frameworks I've inherited, that Jesus is pushing us, his disciples, again and again out of the dualistic mind. And then that's what's plaguing us right now as a culture and society, that we're so anchored in the dualistic mind, whatever side of whatever fence, you know, you're on. Um, that Jesus does this in his teaching by, one, using people outside of his orthodox box as examples of good faith. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, he says, he uses the parable of the good Samaritan. He says of a Roman centurion, I found greater faith in you than in all the house of Israel, than in my own religious tradition. And we have to interpret that today uh, as it would have been heard. A Samaritan and a Roman, a Samaritan is a heretic, you know, outside yeah. of Orthodox Judaism. A Roman is a pagan. Jesus is using heretics and pagans as examples of good faith. Um, and he doesn't say at the end of those stories, and then they converted to Orthodox Judaism. Right. <laughs> And, and so this call for us to look for the movement of God, the spirit of God, the, you know, the outside of our, our bounded boxes, I think is central to the Jesus teaching. Um, and he does it. You know, there's this great scene where some of the disciples come running to him and they say, Jesus, we just found this guy down the road casting out uh, demons and healing in your name. He's not in our team. He's not in our club. Do you want us to smite him? Do you want us to fall down fire? And, I always imagine he rolls his eyes and the text says, he says, no, whoever is not uh, against us is for us, even if they're not, you know, in our formal box. Um, So how do we uh, in the Christian tradition, the Jesus tradition, start uh, seeing that the movement is bigger than any of the boxes and to stop othering? And Jesus does it down to his dying breath uh, when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, the, the dying breath, this moment where you could most forgive the guy for othering, he refuses to other. Uh, yeah. He dies holding the wholeness um, and prays in John's gospel, may they all be one. Um, so just to reorient that, that everything we're talking about, this unit of vision, this non-dual vision, seeing in this way, that it's not um, something newfangled, but it's so Jesus, you know, that's <laughs> at the heart of it. Yeah. I, when I was teaching undergrads um, and I would try to get them to kind of comprehend how, um, I mean, it, it's more than a paradox, like how in, inconceivable it would be to put the word good and Samaritan together. Right. Um, I, would, I would use the analogy of saying, it'd be like uh, saying the good Al-Qaeda fighter. Right. The good <laughs> ISIS terrorist. You right. know, like that's how jarring it would have been to a devout Jew at that time. Yeah. 
so it kind of puts it into like oh oh like that is how much belonging we're supposed to have <laughs> right right and how do how does that relate to our situation at the borders right now yeah absolutely absolutely wow hmm. okay so let me end with some um kind of these are questions to get you to think kind of without like a Rorschach block test kind of a thing. <laughs> so right. how would you, uh, how would you fill in the following phrase? Contemplation is. Mm, contemplation is. Spacious uh, awareness. And for me, rooted in the heart uh, in, in an infinite objectless tenderness. That in the ground of the heart, there is an infinite objectless intimacy uh, that sees that we are we are held in a web of intimacy and interconnection. And contemplation is cultivating spacious awareness uh, from which we can uh, feel into and know uh, that web of intimate tenderness and, and to feel ourselves both as that heart and that as the heart in which we are held. So the purpose of contemplation is all about. That's the question. That's the same. Yeah, fill, the in, fill in the blank. Uh, the purpose of contemplation is all about uh, engaging life uh, ever more fully and freely uh, from a place of non-identified presence that we're non-identified, we're not identified with roles and labels and identities, that we're actually the sort of free-flowing presence and compassion of God. Um, it's all about allowing the heart of God through us to flow more fully into form in the world. That God is longing to express and manifest God's self in creation. And that uh, when we're in that tight ego constricted place, there's no channel through which God can flow. Um, and contemplation is about making room for, for God to be God in the world. Is there a word or a phrase that would capture the heart of your contemplative experience? Hmm. It's hard not to say love, um, but love not as that, emotionally clingy, sticky, sweet kind of love. I love you, do you love me? Um, but love that is just objectless love, love that is simply love-loving, um, objectless awareness, that is love um, in which everything is held. What would be your hope for the future of contemplative Christianity? that it would be a movement of, of uh, awakening and recentering our tradition and the transformative wisdom of Jesus, um, that Jesus actually lays out a path uh, that's still flowing from his living heart to us today, and that it's a path that, that we're invited to walk, that it's not primarily about believing the right things, um, but that it's about experiencing in the right way. Um, that, that he calls us to see from the eye of the heart and uh, yeah, to transform the world. And, and, and that it's, I think Christianity's unique contribution is, is what we could call 
not Christianity alone, but uh, incarnational contemplation, that in Christianity, contemplation isn't a path up and out of the world. You know, it's not this path of ascent up and out of the world into some blissed out, you know, perfection. That, that for God so loved the world, uh, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That contemplation is about God being poured into and integrated into our life and our bodies in the world. Uh, so, yeah, incarnational contemplation. Mm. So similar question, but uh, what would be your hope for the next generation of contemplative practitioners globally? <laughs> well, that we would uh, hold hands and communion more deeply across traditions, which I think is certainly happening, um, and that we would really start uh, interconnecting our contemplative conversation ever more explicitly with the activist community and the activist conversation that these two strands cannot go forward without each other. Mm. Um, and that we would start working towards uh, contemplative teaching models that aren't for the sort of white upper middle class elite and uh, that, that aren't just for, you know, um, yeah, people with time and money mm -hmm. who can get away for retreats. Um, spirituality is becoming something really elitist, I think, in our culture. And how do we start infusing it uh, into structures and systems that are collective and communal and that don't require um, lots of financial resources or lots of education to get your foot in the door? And yeah. that, that's essential for getting this um, forward into the, its next next expression. Hmm. Cool. Well, thanks so much for your time and sharing your wisdom and experience with, with us. It's been a blast. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, lots of fun. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to Contemplate This, conversations on contemplation and compassion. You can find the show notes and more info about Matthew and his upcoming retreats at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode eight. That's the word episode and the number eight with no spaces. If you feel so moved to contribute to the podcast, you can make a donation at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. Or I'm always grateful if you can help promote the podcast on social media or word of mouth. Stay tuned for my next interview, which will be with Dr. Larita Coleman-Brown, a psychologist and student of the great and unfortunately not as well-known Christian contemplative teacher Howard Thurman. Until next time, I hope you find peace and joy amid your practice and the noise of the world today. And I really hope these episodes inspire you to allow more of the divine light and goodness to shine through you into the world that needs it so much. Peace. Peace.